Hey, good morning. It's good to be here. Maybe it's good afternoon now, but it's great to be here. First things first, I want to introduce my wife of 17 years, Susan. Just raise your hand, sweetheart, my five wonderful children. And then uh, the co-pastor, Cleet Bontrager, with his wife, Ruth, and their four children are here. And uh, the rest of the restored peeps, just raise your hand. Got some restored peeps out here, so thankful for that. Um, I like to joke uh, with Restored Church because uh, we were meeting in a, a church facility a couple months ago that was on the second floor at three o'clock in the afternoon, direct sunlight all day. And I said, we're the only church that you have to prepare like you're training a marathon. You got to hydrate. You got to have IVs back in the corner. Um, but actually, this is pretty chilly compared to what we're used to. Okay. And if heat is the worst thing we have to worry about, man, we got a cakewalk on our hands. We're good, right? Um. I'm humbled to be here. I, I love these guys. Cleet and I, on our first scouting trip to Detroit two and a half years ago, we drove 1,741 miles in and around Detroit. Asking God, A, are we crazy? Or B, are you calling us here? And the answer was yes and yes. Uh, and part of the answer that people that God used was uh, Leon Eric and Eric. I just love their God-centered theology that's accessible on the street. I love their uh, the robust missionality. They're, how many times I hear 48214? Man, I love that. That's our language. I mean, Christians can do a great job of theologizing and pontificating about the Great Commission, but at the end of the day, doing jack squat about it. Unless you have a face on those you're trying to reach, you're just... It's all conceptual. It's not actual. It's not real. It's not vital. So we love, we love you guys. Uh, privileged to be here. Humbled to be here. Um, and I'm just looking forward to opening up the Word. Now, i got to admit, I'm, I'm kind of nervous right now. My heart is racing. I don't know if it's because I barely got here. A guy named Dre in the back, we were walking together, and then he fell right off the radar. Don't do that to me again, okay? I'm just about to leave. I'm running late. And he calls me. He says, hey, y'all, y'all gathering today? I said, yep, yeah, but over on east side. So I went and picked him up on the west side and then was reminded on the return trip that I-75 happens to be closed on the weekends. So I lost my salvation a few times on Jefferson Avenue, okay? Hey, I'm going to ask you to stand with me just for a moment as I read the opening salvo of the book of Acts. <clears throat> I feel sorry for you guys right here in front. I promise you, you're going to get a Presbyterian baptism a few times. You are going to get spit upon, but I will do my best not to do that too badly. Acts chapter 1. This is the Word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, 
It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing up into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, once again, we ask, we appeal, we plead with you to pour out your spirit. If your spirit does not crash this party, it's all for naught. And so I do ask that the spirit would be present to give us an unusual attentiveness to the God of glory, the God who gives us the breath we breathe and inscribe the fingerprints on our very hands. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, for we can't see unless you do that, Lord. I pray that you would unstop our ears so that we could hear what you have for us, because we can't hear unless you do that, Lord. And I pray that you would warm our hearts with gospel truth, because left to ourselves, our hearts are nothing but petrified, Lord. So do beautiful things in our life. I pray that, uh, Lord, you would hold back uh, the devil his servants, their works, their effects, and that you would give us some moments here of incredible liberty. Set the captive free and cause those who have been set free to experience more of that freedom, Lord. I pray that this would not simply be informational, but at the end of the day, it would be transformational. In Jesus' name, and all those who knew, know Christ said, Amen. All right, grab a seat. I've been asked to uh, speak on the resurrection in this Christology series. Now, that one is fresh on my mind. Uh, not just because it's a core and cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, but because that place I mentioned that we meet at or we're meeting at, uh, the lay leader, they have kind of a circuit riding preacher, but the lay leader for this church told us that she does not believe that Jesus Christ rose literally and bodily from the grave. She said that flat out to several of us on a lot of different occasions, right? And we have a good relationship. I said, Brenda, do you know you're pretty much contradicting uh, the entire council of the Bible? She said, well, you, you can't really believe the Bible. I mean, come on. The Bible was made up by some people who wanted to invent a religion. I said, hmm. Brenda, do you know who the first witnesses to the resurrection were? She kind of looked up, jogged her memory. She said, I, I think it, it, was, it was some ladies, right? Exactly. It was some ladies. Now, do you know how much um, legal authority a woman carried back in the day? None. My wife is going to be on jury duty this week. Women could not be on jury duty. She probably would like that this week. But women had no authority. So if this book, the Bible, 
was concocted by a bunch of guys in a smoke-filled room trying to invent a supporting document for, an invent, for a religion they invented. Surmise it to say this, they would not have chosen women. I asked her, why are women the first witnesses in the Scripture when they held no legal authority in the day? And the answer, Brenda, is because it really went down that way. That's how it happened. The whole Scripture cries out, there is not only a bloody cross, but there is an empty tomb. It's beautiful. You go down to 1 Corinthians 15, there is this resurrection resume, Cephas. Then he was seen of the twelve. Then 500. You could check some of them up at that time. You could run down their address, get up in their house, ask them. And then you go on and on all the way to the apostle born out of due time, Paul. I mean, I asked her, how do you explain this? The resurrection transformed a bunch of Frady cats into some fearless cats. That's how it went down. I mean, you got this one guy, Peter. His teeth are chattering before a junior high girl. And then he ends his life by being crucified, tradition says, upside down, because he did not count it worthy to die as his master did. How do you, I mean, how do you explain the fact that all over this world, people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every ethnicity are worshiping Jesus. How do you explain that? Except that he actually really cracked the seal of the grave. It's beautiful. Now, I know that where I live, there is a little bit of nation of Islam kind of begin to dip in a little bit. True around here? Anybody ever hear flirted with nation of Islam? Now, one of the things I do appreciate about the nation of Islam is they want to recover a, re a robust manhood. See, they see a lot of hypocrisy in the church. And the reason there's hypocrisy in the church is, one, is there sinful people like me, and two, not every, not every grain is a piece of wheat. Much of it is tares in the church because of another gospel that's preached. But, but, but if, if you are swallowing the nation of Islam line that Jesus really wasn't raised from the dead. I just want to call you out and say, you want to be a man? Be a man and run down the evidence for yourself. There have been people who attempted to disprove the resurrection and were convinced because of the irrefutable, undeniable witness of Scripture that Jesus Christ, the victorious lion of the tribe of Judah, stepped out of that grave on the third day, on that Sunday morning. And that evidence is so irrefutable that you can either reject it, but you will do so to your eternal ruin. Because in Acts 17 it says, God gave proof He will judge the world wherein He raised Him from the dead. We're going to get to Acts 17. But our hearts, man, this is, this is the truth. Our hearts are so hard. They're, they're so hard that in the face of this irrefutable evidence, we will not believe unless something jackhammers away the cement that encrusts our hearts. Thankfully, we have such a jackhammer. He is the Holy Spirit. Now, I just did, by way of intro, I don't know, four, five, six minutes of what's called apologetics. Proving the resurrection. But I didn't, I, I didn't aim to stand up here to spend this whole time doing apologetics. I'm not standing here to prove the resurrection. I simply want to pro proclaim the resurrection this morning. Here's where we're going to go. We're going to, number one, take 
a sprinting look at the emphasis the early church had on the resurrection and asked the question, do I emphasize the resurrection like the early church? Fair question, right? And then we'll put on the brakes really quickly and we'll do a few um, portable take homes. If I believe in the re- resurrection, what should that mean for me this week in the 48214, 48202, 48206 as I fulfill my identity of missionary? Okay? So, what's the, uh, what sort of the story, what book gives you the story of the early church? The book we just read, read from the book of Acts. And I just want to lead into a quick survey of Acts by asking, do you emphasize the resurrection like the early church did? You can never emphasize the crucifixion too much, but you can emphasize the resurrection too little. So let's just dive right in. Seatbelts on, click, click, we are going to move. It opens up in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus what? Began to do. What's that first book? Luke 1. Sometimes it's called. The Gospel according to Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The third Gospel as it's organized in our English Bibles. Luke 1 was about what Jesus did in the first person. When He actually was in the days of His flesh on earth. Did you notice the word began What's the implication of book two if in book one he says he gave all that Jesus began to do? What's the implication? What is it? Just say it out loud. I'm not in here alone, right? What is, what is it? Yeah, there's more to come. Right, exactly. See, the, the book of Acts, Luke 2, if you will, is what Jesus continues to do by his spirit through his followers. Opening salvo, Acts 1, 1 and 2, Jesus is alive. Then you get down to verse 3 and it says he appeared by many proofs. Why does he, I mean, why does he take time to say that? He appeared, he had presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs and he appears for 40 days. We can walk down all those appearances. But again, Luke is saying, for real, for real, for real, Jesus is alive. Then they give this, he says in in verse 4, basically, hang tight. Something crazy about to go down. Then you get to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you have that promise that has rocked the world to this age. It reverberates to this day. It explains why you are here in this room worshiping Jesus Christ. Acts 1.8. Quote it with me if you can. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Man, I want to go sideways so quick on that. Acts 1, 8, B, C, and D. All the world, not just nice areas in the United States, and not just faraway places, but every place. Acts 1, 8, B, C, and D. Now, Jesus issued those words not as a dying man about to be put six foot under, but he issued those words as a general who was alive and well. And this is an ongoing battle command. Then you get to verse 9. And quite literally, he goes away on a self-propelled launcher. He's out of there. And they're like, what? What the? What just went down? He's alive. He just ascended. 
And then I love verses 10 and 11. The angels show up and they're like, basically they're saying, man, stop looking, get to work. He went, he's coming back in between. You got some dirt to turn over, okay? You got some planting to do. He's coming back in the same way that he went. Now, Acts chapter 1. Would you say that the highlighted theme is Jesus is alive? Now, we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, but if you, you have your open Bible, you can look in Acts chapter 1. I think it's verse 22. They had 12 apostles. One of them sort of went south. Judas. They need a replacement. And one of, the, one of the requirements or job descriptions is he will become a witness to us, with us, of the resurrection. It doesn't say witness of the crucifixion. Sure, that's packed in there. But a witness of the resurrection. That was a job description and job requirement for Matthias, the replacement apostle. Now you go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, man, that is some, just some crazy stuff going down in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost. I mean, off the chain pyrotechnics. Tongues of fire, clothes of fire, the old version says. Dolby surround sound, this rushing wind, sound like a freight train going through your living room. And then they're all speaking in different languages, but I'm pretty sure they didn't download Rosetta Stone's language classes, man. They're getting it on in other languages. And people are saying, what in the world is going down? So Peter stands up. He gives the interpretation. He gives the explanation. He says, "Uh uh-uh. These guys are not drinking magnum gravity in brown paper bags. That's not what's going on. This is what was promised and prophesied by the prophet Joel. And just walks through how what was going down there, the outpouring of the Spirit, God promised in the Old Testament. Then he explains even more. If you dip into Acts 2, 2, verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Don't ever forget, who killed Jesus? The Jews killed Jesus. Who killed Jesus? The Romans killed Jesus. Who killed Jesus? We killed Jesus. He was nailed there for my sin. But don't ever forget this. At the end of the day, the gospel is a a story of divine homicide. God was pleased to place him there to crush him for our sins. He makes that point. And then he goes on and he just hammers relentlessly the resurrection. Verse 24, God raised him up. We're just going to verse three. He spoke about the resurrection. Okay, David did in Psalm 16, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. Verse 33. Therefore, being exalted. If we had time, we kind of work through that and parse through all that. But do you see how much airtime he has given to the resurrection? That whole sermon is about the resurrection, and basically the whole point of Pentecost, or a big point of Pentecost, is that the Spirit being poured out is proof that this Nazarene you crucified is God. He has been resurrected and He's reigning. And He's extending His Spirit like a king extends His scepter to extend His rule. Awesome truth. Now you go to chapter 3, and there's so much we could say. I mean, every time the Spirit comes, it's because Jesus is freshly extending His scepter. You're going to see that next chapter. But now we're in chapter 3. And you have this guy who's lame from birth. He's at this gate called Beautiful. He does probably doesn't feel real beautiful, but that's the name of the gate. He's doing his panhandling thing, begging down at the corner near Comerica. And he's just saying, hey, you got change, you got change, holding out his hat, holding out his can, whatever he's got. Peter and James pass him by and they say, hey, look at us. The guy's probably pumped. Like usually when someone's begging, what do you do? Kind of look the other way. But they, they, 
Peter and James get his attention. And this is what they say to him. Silver and gold have I none. Man, finally, oh, forget it. Next person. But in the name of Jesus Christ, take up your bed and walk. And I'm telling you, this was no, oh, I had a sore back. Ah, it feels better. This was no, oh, my toothache is gone. It was no, none of that shenanigans. No, thank you, Benny Hinn. This was real. Like the bones recreating his ankle. And there's nine verbs about leaping and shouting and singing. The kind of things that really we should do if we've experienced God's redemption. Now check out um, verse 15. All the people come after the apostles. This healed man is there. They want to, hey, what is up? What just went down? So people crowd towards him. And we'll dip in at verse 15. And you killed the author of life. Now what does it say? Whom God... Say it loud. Raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, what's the point? The lame guy leaps because Jesus lives. In his name, it happens. And you can look at verse 21, we'll fly past that. But basically it says when Christ returns, only living persons return. When Christ returns, He's going to clean up the whole mess conclusively when the curse will be fully reversed in this day of restoration. But go over to chapter 4. I want to ask you, did the people get that they were making a huge deal about the resurrection? Did they get that? I want to just ask that question. And then if they did... Did they like it? Oh, this was cool, man. We're loving this. Or did they not like it so much? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the temple, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I don't think they liked it. And they, they got it, didn't like it, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. They got it, right? And they didn't like it, but they did get the constant, relentless theme of the preaching, the resurrection of Jesus. So, you got this, uh, they're, they're clapped up in prison, alright? And what happens is... Um, they say, hey, by what power, Acts 4, verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, I want to listen in for that answer before a charged audience. Drop down to verse 10. It says, let it be known to all of you and to all the... I'm sorry, verse... Um, yeah, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God did what? Raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you well. Again and again, they're emphasizing the resurrection. Well, they threaten them, they go, they go do their thing, they have this prayer meeting, end of Acts chapter 4. And if you drop your eyes on Acts 4.31, look what happens as a result of that prayer meeting. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. The Spirit comes again because Jesus is alive, He's reigning, and He extends His Spirit like a king does His scepter. He's still doing that. Go to Acts chapter 4, verse 
4.8214. Do you want this to happen in the 4.8214? Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Man, I sure wish this was one of those churches where you had one of those uh, house nurses. I could use one right now. Or a towel or something. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. Um, Now listen to this description of everything that's transpired thus far. Verse 33, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Why don't they summarize the body of truth they're teaching as the crucifixion? They could, but here they summarize it as the testimony concerning the resurrection of Jesus. That was huge. Huge. Run on over to chapter 5. Guys are clapped up. Peter, James, others. They're clapped up in prison again. An angel springs them free. Jailbreak 1 story in the book of Acts. The angel says, now that you're getting out of here, go, t- go speak all the words of the life. I don't remember the address on there, but it's somewhere in that chapter. Go speak all the words of the life. It's cool. They don't say go speak all the words of the death. They could. Go speak all the words of the life. And I love how these guys, they're not like, man, uh-uh. I'm not going to do what got me thrown up in this crossbar hotel in the first time, first place. No more preaching. I'm going poolside, lawn chair, pina colada. They don't do that. They obey. They go teach. They go preach. The guards catch them and they bring them to the big boys. And with that as a context, drop down to chapter 5, verse 28. Before the religious hooty-tooties, the religious establishment, and, they, and these guys say, we strictly charged you, Acts 5, 28, not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now stop for a second. That is not a children's verse to be used in isolation. That turns into moralism. We must obey God rather than men. You know what I'm talking about? Look at the context. Look at what they're doing. Look at the next verse. It goes on to say, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, God did what? Exalted Him at His right hand and as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Again, every sermon, every, I mean, like, do you guys have anything else to say? You're kind of obsessed with this resurrection thing, aren't you? Is, can, can't you talk about Daniel's toes? Can't you talk about something else? Can't you talk about which way you should school your kids? Can't you talk about what foods? Are, they're about the, they're, they're relentless. They, they just stay on the resurrection. Now, if you're a Bible student and you read through the book of Acts, you say, hold on a second, dude, you overstepped it now. Don't say every sermon in the book of Acts mentions the resurrection. Is that just not true? Eh, kind of. Because maybe you're thinking Acts chapter 7. 60 verses, most of those given to Stephen's testimony where he preaches the gospel saying Jesus is the promised Messiah and just like your fathers rejected the old prophets, you're rejecting the prophet of prophets. I'll point it toward. He said he doesn't mention the resurrection here. He doesn't. You know why? Do you know why? They interrupt his sermon to do What? To stone him. Look at 754. 754. Look at that. 
Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now they're closing in to stone him, which doesn't mean they're taking little pebbles and going like this. It's large rocks. They get him on the ground and they crush them. They crush the cranium. They crush the rib cage. It's a, it's a terrible way to die. They're closing in to do that. But guess what? There is the resurrected Jesus in this sermon. Because in that point of being stoned, as they close in for the kill, in rage, burying their teeth at him, what does it say? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And who did he see? Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, I would say there's kind of resurrection in that sermon, would you? Probably better than any other way. And here's a quick side note that urban missionaries need to hold on to. Because if you're trying to slog it out in the city, you will suffer. But we learn from this story that when we're suffering for Jesus most deeply, the risen Savior gives us His presence most sweetly. And that's what happened right here. Now we're going to run on. That's Acts chapter 7. Get to Acts chapter 8. We know from Acts 8 verse 1. Saul has become the Osama bin Laden against the Christian movement. He's trying to kill everyone he can. Acts 9, he's going to get a hunting license to open up his safari, his hunt against Christians. He goes to the leader of, he's going to the leaders of Damascus and say, can, can I come up in this joint and kill as many as I want in the name of God? He is on the road to Damascus to kill Christians, Paul is, when he collides with the risen Christ. He collides with the resurrected, ruling, reigning Christ. It's crazy. I'm not going to take the time to read those verses, but if you, if you look there, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. He's got to be alive to say that, right? And I love that story because we learn from that story that when man's opposition to God is at its highest... God's ability to stop a person, shatter their hearts, and save them is not diminished in the least. That's what gives me hope as I preach the gospel in the streets. Not because somebody's got a spark in them. All we have is petrified hearts. But there is a God who loves to take the Holy Spirit and boom, break open that heart and bring people to himself. Paul was at the height of his opposition. He's a raging bull on the road to kill Christians. And the resurrected Christ makes him a Christian. Beautiful. That's maybe my favorite passage in all the Bible. Or at least the one I'm preaching on, what that would be. Now, Acts 10, verse 11. Acts 10 and 11. Peter has this sheet vision. I love that vision. You know, here's my life, here's my life verse. You want to see it? Yeah, anybody here have a life verse? Who here has a life verse? If you don't have a life verse, I want to challenge you to make this your life verse. There, go. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. You remember, you know that story where he sees like these, these, these things that Good Jewish men aren't supposed to eat under the old economy. I'm actually not a hunter, but I love the bounty of killing. Rise, kill, and eat. Now, who is speaking that verse? Huh? You know, by the way, when people come and try and impose their crazy eating things on me, I just say, you know what? I eat meat as a matter of salvation. No. All right. All right. All right. All right, now we're going on to the end of this little scene, though, where Cornelius, this, uh, this soldier, he's a pretty moral man, but he's not a Christian man. He brings his whole crew together so that he can hear an explanation for what's been going down. Look at verse 39 of Acts chapter 10. It 
We're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Peter says they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God did what? Raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. And then he adds this. Is this just window dressing? Is this just there just to be there? Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate, ate and drank with him. After he rose from the dead. Now, why is he even? I mean, come on, this is holy scripture. Don't don't put any fluff up in this stuff. Uh, uh-uh. why does he include ate and drank with him? That just seems so insignificant. Why does he say that? Because he really came back to life. He really ate. He really drank. He was really there in bodily form. Run on to chapter thirteen. Okay, now we're in chapter thirteen. I, I said seatbelt, right? Is anybody here with me at all? Anybody? I don't want to lose you. or I, Dude, you lost me like six minutes ago. Okay, now we're in chapter 13. Chance, here's another exit. Let's get on. Acts 13, first leg of the first missionary journey to Antioch of Pisidia. Paul, doing his thing, shows up at synagogues. And by the way, that's just a great reminder for us that religious people need Jesus. He goes after religious people. He goes to the synagogue, and the leader of that synagogue says, Hey, do you have a word of encouragement for us? You never say that to a preacher in front of a group of people. At least you hold on to the microphone like, like um, Eric was doing. You don't give away the microphone. So, yeah, Paul says, I, I think I have a word of encouragement or, or two. And so, very deftly, he, he kind of encourages them and he says, hey, we have a lot in common. Let me get down there. Acts 13. The God, he says in verse uh, 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. He's just identifying with them. Beautiful. Then he pushes it towards Christ, whom the God of their fathers reveals in his fullness. All right. And then this is what he says. Drop down to verse 28. And though they found him not guilty of no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God did what? Raised him from the dead. And for many days he did what? He appeared, verse 33, this he has fulfilled to us in their children by raising, then he quotes Psalm 2, then you go to verse 34, and for as the fact that he raised him from the dead, then he quotes some more Old Testament scripture, go to verse 37, but he whom God, dude, we get it, once was enough. Four times, and then you have the word appearing. Why does he relentlessly hammer the resurrection? Because he does. And then, if you move on to Acts 15, let me just say this, Acts 16, let me say this in passing. They, uh, they respond to that sermon. A lot of people get saved. God still has a lot of people get saved through preaching and community, but both. In fact, people come back the next week, they fill up the balcony. The Jewish leaders... They're not hot on that. They don't like that. They, they, they give Paul a hard time. So this is where one of the times where he shakes the dust off his feet, he says, all right, I'm going to the Gentiles then. And I love Acts 13, 48, because it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life. Anybody know that rest of that verse? Believe. Do, do you get the import of that? As many as were ordained to eternal life believe. See, the risen Christ will receive the full reward of his suffering. The doctrine of election is a beautiful thing when you want to be on mission. Now, Acts 16. 
You have a couple of things where, this, where, where Jesus manifests His presence. For one, the Spirit of Jesus gets them to where they need to be. Macedonia. But if you look at Acts 16, verse 14, Jesus opens Lydia's heart. I want to read verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. Did you get that? The Lord. You say, well, who's the Lord there? I won't even take the time to support this. But when you have the word Lord by itself in the book of Acts, it's referring to Jesus. That's why it will say people receive the Lord. Who's it talking about? They receive Jesus. The Lord opened her heart. Again, that's what it takes for somebody to come to Christ. The risen Lord has to open people's heart to receive what he did on the cross. Verse 18, got this slave girl. She's got a spirit of divination. You can read that in verses 16 and 17. She's not, I'm not going to say demon possessed. That's not even a category the Bible uses. She's demonized. Okay, she's demon influenced. Paul has enough of it. And this is what he does. Verse 18. She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, now listen here. There is power in the name of Jesus. And that power in the name of Jesus is not just because of his blood, but it's because the one who shed his blood in four directions to appease the wrath of God, propitiation, to remove our sin, expiation, to bring us to God, reconciliation, and to kick Satan's tail and strip him, Christus victor, the one who shed his blood to do all that rose from the dead. So when it says there's power in Jesus' name, it's the blood of Jesus Christ in all that it accomplished as ratified by the resurrection. Now, if you go over to Acts 17, that is a powerful missional text. If you want to understand what does it look like to be a missionary in a given area, study out that sermon. Look at what Paul, look at what he saw. He saw the idols. Can you see the idols of your community? Look what he felt, passion, pain, burden. Look what he did. He went to where people were so that he could give the gospel to them. And look what he said. He said the gospel in ways they could understand. Now, look at verse 18. The time, I'm sorry, verse 18, Acts 17. This is how they describe his preaching in the marketplace and in the synagogue. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say to you? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was doing what? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Then they take him up to Mars Hill, which is kind of like the skinny jeans area of Athens. It would be like Woodbridge. All right. The times of God's ignorance, God overlooked Acts 1730. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by doing what? Raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. What do you, hey, by the way, what are you doing when you hear about the resurrection? Some mocked. Yeah, we'll hear about that later. Some said, I've got to hear more. And some believed. Have you, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Now, Paul was not immune to discouragement as lion-hearted of a preacher as he was. 
He's, now we're in Acts 18. He's in Corinth. There's tough slogging. A lot of Jews rejecting the message. He does get a little bit of fruit. This guy named Crispus believes. But one of my favorite verses, Acts 18, verse 10. Get a running start. The context is, don't be afraid, Paul. Verse 10, for I am with you. How can Jesus say I'm with you? Because he's still what? Because he's still alive. And so the risen Christ reminds him that he has a chosen people that will come. So just be faithful to what I've given you to do. The risen Jesus encourages him. Now, preachers can get long-winded, and I'm just about done with this summary, okay? Preacher, you're like thinking, yeah, I know that. You're like a living illustration of that, dude. Well, Paul got rather long-winded. Acts 20, he preached late into the night. There's some guy up on the third floor windowsill, and he falls asleep and falls to his death. Look at those verses. Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while while daybreak and so departed. (laughs) How beautiful, man. That's just like in a book that just pummels and hammers home the truth that Jesus was raised from the dead. You have another resurrection. And it says his parents were were not a little comforted. That's an understatement. I've almost lost three children. Just recently, almost lost one. And I know what my heart is like to be, what it was like. It was just gripped in anguish. This kid had actually died. And the resurrected Jesus' power worked through that resurrection. The day is coming in which Jesus is going to raise everyone from... That's like a foretaste. That's like putting your finger in the... Like if your mom's a good cook and you like to get the bat of her bowl, that's what that is. And God's going to download that for everyone who puts their faith in. You know anybody who's passed away? They're, They're with the Lord, but the day's coming when their body will rise from the grave. Now... Acts chapter 20, verse 24. This is the verse that drives my... I really do have a theme verse. In conjunction with this other one, this is my theme verse. Paul says, given his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, but I do not account my life, my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. When did he receive that ministry? When he ran into, no, no, when the risen Christ ran into him. Again, Jesus is alive. And and, and I'll just summarize the last seven chapters of the book of Acts. It's a story of Paul going to Rome where he'll stand trial before the Caesar. Twice he mentions his testimony of running in or being run into by the risen Christ. And at every level of authority up the ladder of the chain of command, he constantly says, this is why I'm on trial, because I preach Jesus rose from the dead. And when he gets there to the prison, the last verse of the book is he was preaching the kingdom of God with all bold, without hindrance. But wait a second, he's under arrest. Though his body was confined, his soul was not because Jesus is alive. Because his, though his hands were chained, his mouth was not because Jesus is alive. Now listen, I have just hammered this point. You said, dude, you could have made it a long time ago. Have you ever looked at the book of Acts that way? 
Have you ever seen how much it hammers the resurrection? Have, just tell me, have you? I'm convicted and I've been preaching a dozen years. I've assumed upon a truth that wasn't assumed upon by the early church. They exalted in it. Realtors say location, location, location. They're not much help. We're trying to get people to move into our zip code because that's what they say. Yeah. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. That was the drumbeat of the early church. For the early church, the resurrection wasn't a reason to believe the faith. The resurrection was the faith. Now, do you give the same estimation, the same emphasis, the same intensity, the same focus, the same airtime to the resurrection as you do to the crucifixion. Make make no mistake about it. We're never going to get over the crucifixion. I was just down in Revelation this morning, communing with God, and I read that passage where it says, we saw a lamb as if having been slain. You're never going to get over the fact that he was crushed on the cross for us. He's constantly called the Lamb. The sufferings that He experienced on the cross to atone for our sin will be the fuel for our everlasting praise. It will be off the chain. You won't sit on your hands. Your hands won't be in your pocket. It is going to be off the chain. We will always worship Jesus because He was crushed for us. We'll never forget that. But, but, the resurrection is not simply a doctrinal tack-on to make sure you get your doctrines safe. But the resurrection is the confession of the early church. That if you would believe in your mouth, I'm sorry, if you would believe in your heart, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For you should confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 4.25, He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Now, if you're convicted that you haven't given the airtime to the resurrection that you should, you're in good company. You ever heard of this old guy, C.H. Spurgeon? Let me throw this quote at you. Early in his ministry, he said, reflecting the other day upon the sad state of churches at the present moment, I was led to look back to apostolic times and to consider wherein the preaching of the present day differed from the preaching of the apostles. I was surprised that I had not been copying the apostolic fashion nearly as much as I should. The apostles, when they preached, always testified concerning the resurrection of dead and the consequent resurrection of dead of Jesus and the consequent resurrection of the dead. And he made amends. Rest of his published sermons, resurrection mentioned 7,600 times for an average of 20 times a sermon. As we survey the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, we must always scan the empty tomb from which the King of Glory arose. And we must look up yonder at the glittering throne. I know that's next week is rain, but we must look up at the throne from which the Lord of Glory sovereignly rules. You cannot truly be cross-centered unless you're empty tomb-centered. We have been born again to a living hope through His resurrection. Now, I got it. I got it. I got it. We're done. Okay. I didn't even do the application, which was I did five pages of notes. And then there's one page left of application. And we'll wrap it right here, bud. Hmm? 
All right, real quick. Do you believe in resurrection? Do you believe in resurrection? What difference is it going to make this week? Three things. Because Jesus is alive, one, Jesus is for you. Jesus is for you. See, the resurrection is validation that Jesus really is for broken up, busted up, sinful, wretched, at enmity, rebellious people like us who know it, who call it out and come to him. He's all for us. The resurrection turns these mere sentimentalities of yellow, smiley face, bumper sticker, God loves you, into actual life-transforming, eternity-lasting truth. The resurrection proves, it proves that when he stepped out of the tomb, he really did take away God's judgment. Do you feel guilt? Look to, the, look to an empty tomb. You shouldn't walk around with guilt if you come to Jesus. Do you feel like your sin is still clinging to you like a parasite? It's proof He has separated our sin from us as far as east is to west. Do you sometimes feel like you're on probation with Him? The resurrection proves that He adopts those who know they're bastards, who know they need a Father who will never leave them, who will never forsake them. Do you feel like Satan's on you? You don't have to give him authority in your life because Christ kicked his butt on the cross. Now, sometimes people glibly, I hate this. They talk about, oh, I was shaving and I saw and Jesus came to me. You ever heard something like that? Dude, you'd cut your jugular on your razor if that happened to you. You'd while out. Revelation 1, John sees Christ in all of his glory. He hits the deck. He's out of his mind. He's fearful. And Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, do not fear. Don't fear. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have in my hand, not Satan, the keys of death and hell. Have you come to him who holds the keys? Have you come have you come? Have you come to this living Savior? Have you come to Him? If you come for Him, He is all in for you. He's all in for you and will all be all for you. The resurrection proves it. And your coming would just be proof that He's calling you. He's doing the Lydia thing. He's opening your heart. He's all for you. Second of all, because Jesus is alive, He's not all for you. He is with you. And the ways that the Scripture tells us He's with us is very instrumental and very informative. First place, Great Commission. You all probably, most everyone here knows that text. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you. How long? He says in a unique, special way, I'm with you when you seek to make disciples this week in the 48214. He also says that he's with us with reference to sacrifice and suffering. The book of Hebrews was written to a people. They were, man, they were getting jacked up. They're getting butchered. They're getting haymakers thrown at them right and left. They're in a hurt locker. And he's saying, the writer of Hebrews, stay with Jesus. He's better than, he's better than, he's better than. Jesus trumps everything. Stay with him and your sacrifice and suffering. And there it says, Hebrews 13, 5. Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And then he says, a little, a few verses later, a call for us to be on mission. Come outside the gate with me. And bear the reproach I endured. 
How come, how come so many people are led to plant churches in safe areas? The Holy Spirit's only operating there? Huh? Acts 1, 8, B, C, and D. But we kind of forgot Judea and Samaria. That's why I love to hear people from faraway places that want to come here and they want to live here. Man, when you cross that finish line and you see the Lord in all of His glory, you don't want to slap, if you've got a bald head like me, slap your head and say, in light of all that you are, I tried this much. You want to cross that finish line sore and spent, lactic acid built up in your legs, lungs burning, because it's going to make your everlasting enjoyment of the crucified risen king's bounty all the everlasting sweeter in your father's house. He is with you in mission and in suffering. And if you try to do the first, you will suffer or you will suffer. But remember what we learned from the life of Stephen. In your deepest suffering, you'll experience him most sweetly and deeply. And then and then I'm out with this. Because Jesus lives, he is for you. He is with you. And this is crazy. He is in you. And you are in Him if you place your faith in Jesus. Colossians 1.27, Paul talks about the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. And then Romans 6 is kind of reversed. If you come to Christ, you have been united with Him in His death. You've been united with Him in His resurrection. Ephesians 2 you were with raised. In the Greek, the, the preposition with is right with that verb. You were with raised with him. You've been with seated with him. You've been with made alive with him. Union, union, union. This, this sadly and tragically overlooked, underappreciated, underemphasized doctrine of Christianity that when we come to Christ, we are joined to him. I can't explain it. A.T. Pearson, this old guy, said those are the biggest three words in the entire Christian dictionary. In Christ Jesus, or similar der derivatives. That's the most, and he wrote 90 pages, small print. And I just want to challenge you if this does never resonate, if, if this has never rocked your world, to get along with the New Testament epistles this week and highlight everywhere it says in Christ or Christ in me. Because 2 Peter 3.18 says that we are transformed from one level of glory to another as we behold the glory of God. In the Word of God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I'm telling you, that will fire community and mission like nothing else. Because Jesus is alive... He is for you. He is with you. He is in you and you are in Him. And the only way to experience these realities to the max, this side of glory, is to commit yourself to a local church that puts a premium on holistic, real-time, raw discipleship. Jesus, after all, is the living head of a living body that he lovingly designed for us to do life together in and with. The resurrection calls you to commit to a living body. 
All right, let me bounce. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the grace and the generosity of this church to be able to speak here. Uh, nobody fell out of a third floor, but maybe somebody fell out of a first floor seat. Um, but God, I, I ask that your spirit would do his thing to the praise of your glory and to the increasing, everlasting satisfaction and surrender of our hearts. Amen.